The president is isolated, impotent, and has an overblown sense of grievance. His temperament gets in the way of the governing, and that's the problem. Ask yourself if those pictures tell you that we have a president that gives a damn about people who are suffering. He feels he needs to be getting credit for things he shouldn't be getting credit for because he has very few accomplishments. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about Donald Trump. My name is Jamel Bowie. I'm Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's episode. As his approval rating sinks in the face of controversy and mismanaged crisis, President Trump has turned to his most successful trick to buoy his standing, racial demagoguery. It began with an attack on Jamel Hill, an ESPN analyst who called Trump a white supremacist on Twitter, and who promptly faced a backlash from both ESPN viewers and the company itself. Eventually, the White House joined in, calling for her firing. It then escalated at a rally in Alabama, where Trump blasted a group of professional football players for kneeling during the national anthem in protest of police brutality. Most recently, President Trump and Vice President Pence staged a bit of political theater, with Pence attending a football game in Indiana, then leaving when the players kneeled, citing their alleged disrespect for the American flag. But reports from journalists on the scene suggest that this departure was planned, and that was all but confirmed after Trump praised Pence for leaving on Twitter. What was the point of all of this? To stir up anger and resentment towards the players, who are largely black, for the sake of energizing a base that fed on this behavior from Trump during the election. That Trump would do this at a time of actual crisis, wildfires in California, disaster in Puerto Rico, just shows how he relies on racial resentment for political gain. In just a moment, we'll talk to Cornell Belcher, a pollster who specializes in race and public opinion. But first, we have a few words from our sponsor. To talk about Trump and his use of race, we have Cornell Belcher, a pollster who worked for Barack Obama and whose latest book, A Black Man in the White House, Barack Obama and the Triggering of America's Racial Aversion Crisis, deals with the role of racism in our contemporary politics. Hi, Cornell. Welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be a guest. Uh, you know, I, I've, I, I write quite a bit about race and racism uh, in American politics. And one thing I have been paying attention to uh, with some interest is just the degree to which in the past month or so, I think the president has really been leaning hard on white racial resentment, to put it plainly. The NFL tweets and comments um, calling for uh, Jamel Hill at ESPN to be fired uh, not too long ago. There's sort of a, it's sort of ramped up. And, and so my first question for you is just, have you, am I, are you seeing that as well? Or am I just sort of reading too much into what is ordinary Trump behavior? Well, I, I, I don't think that I wouldn't use the term ramping up because I don't think it's he's ever let off of it. Right. If you if you understand what Trump's predicate is, I mean, there was all this conversation about economic angst, economic angst. And we all know that to be to a certain extent um, bullshit. Right. If the post-election analysis after post-election analysis and shows you that, you know, frankly, what the key variable driving Trump's voter was not economic angst, but in fact, a much more powerful angst about losing the country, a cultural angst, a change angst, right? And and if you look at voters who, quite frankly, were most vulnerable and, and most economically anxious, they those voters broke hard for Hillary Clinton, right? So his primary predicate from the very beginning has been to flame and drive racial angst. When people stand up and say, 
I want my country back, right? That's not about the deficit, and that's not about jobs or the minimum wage. That's about literally a fear that they're losing their country, right? And it happened to be on the back end of, for the first time in our country's history, the election of a black man in the White House, an election of a black man that really encapsulated the whose coalition encapsulated the changes that that's happening in America. You know, Barack Obama didn't didn't break through some magical uh, way with with white voters. No, he got the same percentage of of the white vote as John Kerry did, but won. Right, and in fact, in 2012, we even got less of a white vote, but still won. But he won on the back of a very diverse coalition, right? So for the first time in our history with Barack Obama, you have a real challenge to white political power. So here's a sort of a question related to all of this and, and something I have been thinking about, and, and that is racial appeals aren't new to American politics, but Trump's are and have been kind of unusually explicit in sort of their content. And so is that, does that, that, does that explicitness change like basically how white voters received it like is is there a way in which the explicitness uh brought the issue of a loss of control to the surface and like activated that for voters no i i think that's the there is a connection but i i i think it's a different it's a different way right um most Republicans were surprised that Trump was able to get as far as he was able to get because historically, look, you know, the Southern strategy has been a real thing, right? And it has been a very successful thing for a long time. I would argue, as a student of politics uh, and elections, that they're the most successful political strategy in, the, in, the, in modern American history is the Southern strategy, right? You know, and, and Lee Atwater being one of the founders of that strategy, and talked about it at one point, how it was, in fact, a strategy about pitting whites, working-class whites, against, against black people, right? That has been very successful in, in political and throughout political history. And the nuances of it from Reagan and, you know, Reagan's, you know, launching his, his, his campaign from Philadelphia, Mississippi, and us understanding what Philadelphia, Mississippi has meant in the civil rights movement, right? To welfare queens, to, to Nixon and, and law and order, to Willie Horton, you know, you name it, you know, there's been, there's been subtleties to it and it's gotten, you know, even more subtle over the years because of sensitivities, right? What I argue in my research is that, that Donald Trump could not have been elected. He would not have made it to the Republican primary before Barack Obama, right? You had characters like Pat Buchanan who were kind of Trump-esque in their nationalism, right? who did not gain the steam that, that Trump did. But it was a cataclysm of the, of the Obama election and this majority new coalition that looks diverse, this black and brown and white coalition. Look, the, the wolf was at the door in a, in a way, in a real way, because of the election of Barack Obama, like we've been this, this ideal that America's getting browner, America's getting browner has been going on for a while, but it was far away and it wasn't as, uh, the wolf wasn't at the door. Well, with the election of Barack Obama and this black family, all of a sudden the wolf's at the door. With that in mind, what do you think the function Trump's, uh, you know, attacks on NFL players are playing? Because they're not sort of in this 
you know, make America great again tenor. They're not in this, you're losing something, I'm going to get it back tenor. They're sort of in this, um, you know, these people are disrespecting your values. And so how do voters, you know, how do you think voters re- react to that kind of message? Does it does it keep them mobilized and activated along these lines? How is it playing out? How but do you think it, it plays out? But we, but we know it. But we know it does. We know that's calculated, right? Again, Trump is a product of of angst, of racial angst, right? And the more he can continue to drive that racial angst and in many ways possible, the best, the better, right? You know, while while Puerto Rico was literally drowning, the idea that the president of the United States is going to <laughs> start tweeting and attacking NFL players for taking a knee is so absurd, unless you do understand that he's crazy like a fox. And, and it's remarkable to me that it's almost like we're in a movie, and I live in Washington, D.C., and it's, it's just like, it's like sometimes I sit back and I throw popcorn in my mouth, and it's, cause, and it's like I, I'm, try, I'm watching what's happening because this can't be real. This has to be a movie, right? So the Russians saw that our racial division uh, was such that they could, in fact, exploit our racial divisions, right? And particularly in our social media space, they could use our social media space and our freedoms to further exploit our racial divisions and, and fan those flames. And that would, in fact, make America a, a weaker country. That would be, make America more divisive, right? This is how America fails. America doesn't fail because of the Taliban or, or ISIS or you know, some terrorist group attacking us. America doesn't fail because of some foreign army that's going to invade our shores. No, America fails because we Americans fuck it up. So a couple of days ago, or, or last week, I kind of lost track of time a bit, um, but sometime in the recent past, the Washington Post ran uh, a piece arguing that Trump is probably on his way to re-election, that like, the, the ground-level conditions suggest that he could win re-election. And, and part of that argument was that um, the, the, the writer termed a kind of cultural issues, but basically this priming of racism, this, this constant uh, priming that pump, activates the, this, this narrow but kind of potent coalition of voters um, that could deliver Trump another electoral college victory. So my question for you is, how does one counter that? Right, like if 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 the use of racism is that potent that it can kind of it can help a candidate win the presidency without a popular vote win, how do how does the Democratic Party counter that kind of strategy? A couple things. One, anyone who's who's writing about about how someone's going to be reelected this far out from a, a year is a lifetime in, in, in <laughs> right. politics, right? So we're a we're a long long way from that point. And, you, and most of you remember how. After 2010, uh, a lot of Democrats were, were and some Democrats were even saying that President Obama should not even run for re-election. You know, you had that sort of asinine analysis out out there because he couldn't win, right? Now that said, progressives have spent a lot of time talking about what it is that Trump did, as opposed to what, in fact, Democrats and progressives did not do, and that was, in fact, hold together the Obama coalition. Those are our voters. Right, not these, not Trump voters. It's ideal that we're going to do better by going by by somehow miraculously winning Trump voters is asinine. If you look at the last couple of couple of months, I'd make the argument that we've put out most of our time and our resources on trying to understand and chase Trump voters. So we're trying to win over a a segment of the electorate that's less than a plurality. We would rather try to chase Trump voters than, in fact, 
empower a new generation of people who look a lot different than the leadership of the Democratic Party. So this is, to me, the, the fundamental problem with progressives in the Democratic Party right now is they're looking the wrong way. I have been speaking to Cornell Belcher, pollster and author of A Black Man in the White House, Barack Obama, and the Triggering of America's Racial Aversion Crisis. Cornell, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Trumpcast listeners, this is Jason here, producer of the show. Jumping in for an extra segment today with uh, Slate's own Jordan Weissman. Hey, Jordan. Hey, how you doing, man? Earlier in the show, I had Jamel, uh, and he was talking about the backlash to the Obama years. And here's yet another example of the backlash to the Obama years, which were the two executive orders that President Trump signed yesterday. Donald Trump's petty, vindictive, vicious, completely, <laughs> completely pointless attempt to yeah. knock over the entire U.S. healthcare system. Yes. So, like, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, one of the things that happened when I was a kid, I swear this is going to make sense a little bit, no, ho- hopefully. It. So when I was a kid, I'd sometimes, like, break my toys or my video games just to, like, make my parents get me a new one. And <laughs> sorry, mom, that if, like, if you're listening, sorry, mom. But it sounds like that's what Trump is doing a little bit. It feels like there. It feels like there's some of it. Yeah, it's it's a little hard to read into his exact political motivations. I think the reporting that's come out has yeah. raised as many questions. Yeah. But it seems like the idea here is if I just send the system into chaos, if I just flip over the board game, whatever, Congress is going to have to you know repeal and replace or do something, or Democrats are going to have to negotiate a a deal to fix everything. Right. Um, that that might be his thinking. I maybe. should keep in mind that this is people's lives and not toys and video games. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Like, yeah, the healthcare for millions. Yes. Right. So what was in those two executive orders yesterday that President Trump signed? Okay, so uh, yesterday started... <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Yeah, I no have worries. a piece of French fry <laughs> that I started We were eating <laughs> kids' food out there <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, let's see if this gets edited out or not. If well. not, everyone is learning a little bit about my diet habits. Um, the first executive order that Trump signed yesterday is essentially aimed at deregulating the insur- the individual insurance market. It's aimed at doing a lot of the things that congressional Republicans wanted to do with their Obamacare repeal bills, but obviously failed to do. And it goes about it in a few different ways, but all of them could sow some chaos in the insurance market and ultimately make coverage more expensive for sicker, older people who need more comprehensive plans. One of them was he wanted to expand, make it easier to buy what's known as short-term insurance coverage. And this is the first executive order that he signed yesterday in yeah. the morning. Yes, exactly. This is this was part of it. And so the first part, there, there's these things called short-term insurance plans. And these things exist theoretically for people who have a, a brief gap in their coverage. They're between jobs or something and didn't do COBRA. Um, and they just need something to tide them over. And so the, the, these plans don't have to abide by all of Obamacare's rules and regulations. They don't have all the same consumer protections. They you know, can use underwriting. Sick people can get charged more. They don't have to cover all the same benefits. And since 2016, these sorts of plans have only been allowed to last for about three months. And that's a regulation the, the Obama administration put in place because they realized that before, when they could last for up to a year, some younger, healthier people were just using these things as their coverage 
basically semi-permanently. Um, and there, even though this kind of coverage doesn't uh, actually count as insurance under Obamacare, they were still buying it because it was so much cheaper that even if they paid the individual mandate penalty that says you have to pay a tax if you don't have uh, health care, um, it was still less expensive for them overall. And so they said, OK, we can't have these plans siphoning off the young and healthy people who cross subsidize all of the older, sicker people in the market. So they limited their use. So the first thing that the Trump administration uh, order did yesterday is basically it signaled that they're going to think about undoing that rule and make it possible for people to buy these plans for a year at a time. And that's going to make it possible for young people to go off and buy this non-insurance insurance. insurance. Um, That's going to draw them out of the exchanges and that's going to leave kind of a sicker, uh, more expensive to cover population behind, makes that coverage the comprehensive Obamacare plans more costly. Um, The second thing it did was actually, if you believe it, more complicated, but it focused on these things called association health plans. And this is an idea that Rand Paul really, really loved. But it's basically the, the uh, this mechanism where small businesses can all bound together or bind together and uh, pool their resources and buy insurance for their employees. And it's not exactly clear how the Trump administration wants to go out doing this because there are lots of legal questions hanging over you know how much room they have to navigate here. However, what it looks like is they want to let these associations offer health plans that do not fulfill all of Obamacare's requirements, that offer skimpier coverage that costs less, and at the same time, possibly make it, it available to self-employed workers. And that would be huge. That would draw a lot of people also off of the exchanges, a lot of younger, healthier folks. And they also want to, it seems like they want to make it possible to sell this kind of coverage across state lines or so that public officials in New York or California that wanted to stop this kind of thing and wanted to preserve their Obamacare exchanges um, wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And the executive order has a lot of like, a lot of weasel words. <laughs> There's like a lot of weaselly language in there. That's like the secretary shall consider proposing a rule that maybe on Tuesday, uh, sixteen score from now. Like, <laughs> it's like no, right? Like, maybe we'll get to it of the sixth of never. I mean, but no, it's but this is what they're signaling is they want to try and deregulate the market by administrative fiat. So the second executive order that they signed later in the evening with the classic, this is like around six o'clock again. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> so this is like the, he dropped the bomb, right? right the this classic. is like, yeah. in the, everyone was watching the the damn uh, Nats game, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I was watching the Nats Cubs and, yeah, and this thing fell. I, yeah. It was really interesting to watch like healthcare Twitter too on there. Cause like half of us were like, Screw it! I'm just watching the game. Because, <laughs> like, which is quite frankly where I fell, and I had yeah. to read up a little bit before I started talking. To you. Like, basically, I would say a good seven and ten of like the healthcare wonks in this country are Washington Nationals fans. So, yes, like, yes. So it, it dropped last night, and it was something that people have been sort of anticipating for a long time. It was what a lot of people have called Trump's nuclear option. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been playing a sort of will they will he or won't he game for a while. He's been kind of threatening to to do this thing I'm about to describe. Um, and it's finally happened. So what did Trump do? Basically, he's ending uh, this set of subsidies that are paid to insurers that are kind of essential to making Obamacare work the way it's supposed to. They're known as cost sharing reduction payments, which is just like a cringeworthy bureaucratic phrase. Yeah, yeah, no one someone someone pointed out that that phrase alone has made it very difficult. Like the name of what these things are has made it very difficult to explain them to people. Yes. It's it's hard to know what to call them exactly. But basically this is money that gets paid to insurers to compensate them because 
they are under Obamacare required to cap what their lower income customers pay out of pockets in terms of in terms of things like co-pays, co-insurance, stuff along those lines. It's just it's basically it's money that goes to insurers to cover the expense of offering better coverage to poor Americans. And some Republicans, like including Trump, have tried to call this stuff a bailout, which is absurd because that's an it's just part of the law. It's just one more subsidy in the law that works in a weird technocratic way. But it's also been the subject of a lawsuit that I can spend a long time talking about. But essentially, a while back, a federal judge ruled that the payments were not legal because they had never been appro- they had never technically been appropriated by Congress. Um, you can get deeper into that. They may the, the insurers may be owed this money regardless, and they may be able to get the money regardless. But in this like very narrow legalistic sense, the judge basically said like, no, the the administration can't keep paying these, and Trump. Then, you know, that that case went up on appeal and Trump has sort of been threatening to stop the payments ever for for at least six months now. I was looking back through my article. You see a story almost once every couple of months of him just just saying, "Ah, I might blow up Obamacare now. (laughs) I might blow up Obamacare. And so the reason why cutting these things off is so important is that insurers have to offer these discounts. They have to offer cost sharing reductions to people uh, who are below 250% of the poverty line who buy a silver plan. But now the government's not going to pay the cost of doing that. So they stand to lose a lot of damn money. Uh, or they could, depending on what state they're in. And, and this is where And things, they also lose the incentive to be in the exchange. In the exchange. Yeah, exactly. They, they could stand to lose a lot of money. And they, as a result, I mean, no one wants to lose money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not doing this for charity. That's the whole, yeah. the whole idea of Obamacare is that insurers could sell coverage that the government would help make affordable and make a profit and everyone would go home happy. Um, it turned out, you know, that's worked marginally well. But this could lead to a situation where some states suddenly don't have any insurers on their marketplaces anymore because they just don't think it's worth it. And and now the issue here where it gets complicated is this is going to vary a lot state by state because some places, some insurance commissioners saw Trump's threats, which again have been happening for months and months and months. And took it into account. Uh, Yeah. And they said, okay, we're going to let our insurers price the possibility of all hell breaking loose in. And we're going to let them charge more for silver plans or for all their plans, whatever. We're going to we're going to take some preparations. We're going to for the storm coming. Other insurance commissioners are like, Eh, <laughs> I'm gonna YOLO. <laughs> right, <laughs> YOLO. <laughs> YOLO. Let's see how this goes. Let's so and they 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 kind of they negotiated rates or they set rates basically on the assumption that Trump will probably just keep paying these things. He's not gonna he's not gonna actually try to bring the markets collapsing down. And so they got proven wrong. And yeah. so it's really not and like one of them, and some of them are states like Arizona where they've had a lot of trouble getting uh, insurers for all their counties to begin with. So I'm not quite sure what happens in those places. Some of them could end up um, without coverage, but it's really hard to make predictions about how all this is going to shake out in the end. For legal reasons, there are probably going to be lawsuits already state attorneys general are talking about it. The economics of all this, like how prices will adjust and how that interacts weirdly with Obamacare's different subsidies are really they're complicated. Just, they're complicated and baroque. If you can believe it, I I, I don't want to lay I I, I don't want to like lay all this out on you, but or on our listeners. But there are some ways that some people on Obamacare's exchanges could end up getting free coverage 
because of <laughs> what's happening. Like there's a because of the way the subsidies are probably going to increase to compensate for the more expensive silver plans out there. Uh, the subsidies may now be able to cover the entire cost of a bronze plan, et cetera, et cetera. Some people may get free coverage. Some people may be able to afford um, cheaper gold plans as a result of this. You know, I'm, I'm spewing a lot of details here. The point is just understand it's weird what's going to happen. It's really hard for anyone to wrap their mind around all of it, much less all the legal details. Um, what we do know is shit's going to be chaotic. And the question is, can the system hold together under all this stress in every state? And I kind of don't think it can. I, I feel like it probably can't. And this is kind of gut instinct. This is not like I'm sitting here writing, you know, I'm not doing calculations here. <laughs> like, this is, the walls of this podcast yeah, room are not like a beautiful mind where you're no, just like... <laughs> exactly. I'm not like, I'm not breaking out like pivot tables or anything <laughs> on Excel, but it just, it feels like in some states, something has to give. So jumping off of that point, are there people, are there Republicans that have come out against this, against the two executive orders that Trump has there, put out? So I have seen some, I, I haven't been paying super close attention to all the politics of it. I, I know, uh, I believe Charlie Dent in Pennsylvania, who is one of the token moderates, he's a go-to moderate quote mm-hmm. <laughs> in the House, has definitely said, I'm I'm kind of worried. Um, there was a, there was a Republican from South Florida who tweeted something critical about the executive orders. My sense is that Republicans are much more worried about what will come of killing off the cost-sharing reduction payments than they are about the first executive order. Uh, the deregulatory order, I think, was actually quite popular among the GOP. They see it as advancing a lot of their uh, policy goals. Republicans do not believe in making healthy Americans subsidize the coverage of sicker Americans. They don't. They, they are ideologically opposed to that part of Obamacare. And so I think they are basically fine with giving healthy people an out. That That's that's why Rand Paul is, is so, you know, is so back to this idea of association plans. I think uh, the caution and reduction payments, it's, it's easier to see the political fallout. Like it just, everything comes tumbling down. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's not hard to figure out who caused the problems and people are going to get angry if they see their premiums rising. And so it, it's just much... It, it, it's much more obvious uh, how this can work out poorly for them. Um, so this is all very complex. Yeah, sorry, so, I, I have not done, done an excellent job simplifying. But <laughs> no, but don't worry about that because this is like part of the question. This is all very complex, and I do not believe that Donald Trump can understand complex things. And so I always assume that there's somebody <sighs> in his ear that is just this is a this is a question I've had in my. I, I think I know where you're going with this. This reeks of Mick Mulvaney. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. know. To me, it does. I don't know if it's Mick Mulvaney or who. Um, You know, Mick Mulvaney is the kind of guy who would at least probably understand what would come of it. So it's it's really I I don't know who's whispering in his ear about all this right now because Tom Price is gone. Right. Like he doesn't have his, his old secretary of health and human services. I don't really know who's advising him on healthcare at this point. Steve, maybe Steve Bannon's calling him. I don't know if he can get through to the switchboard, though, thanks to John <laughs> Kelly. This is definitely not something that I, that the, the quote, Democrats, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know as, as they like to refer to this Goldman Sachs crew, are really keen on. But someone has to have advised him. Yeah, just go nuclear. So, Jordan, are, are there any more bipartisan efforts left to try and shore up the ACA. I know like Lamar Alexander had something going with uh, Patty, Patty Murray. Yeah, Patty Murray. I, that seems to be sort of the hope now. And and there's this sort of um, there's a very sleep pitchy take on this that maybe this will all work out for the best because um, <laughs> very sleep pitchy. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the idea is that Trump has now kind of forced a crisis. Classic. And Republicans can't just let things limp along anymore or they face uh, almost certain political 
backlashes yeah. in 2018. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, not political doom, but they do. They, they, they will face an almost certain backlash. And so this might actually generate more support for a bipartisan, a, a small bore bipartisan effort that appropriates the money for the cost sharing reduction payments and makes some changes around the edges that to Obamacare that maybe makes it possible to buy slightly cheaper coverage for some people, slightly less comprehensive coverage, or give states a little bit more flexibility on parts of the program. That that's the optimistic take. That's the that's the glass maybe like almost half full, nearly like <laughs> Like two fifths full. <laughs> All right. So we never wrap up interviews on the glass being almost half full here. And so we're going to wrap it up really quick. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jordan, for taking the time to talk to me. No problem, man. And that's it for today's show. Weird, I've never done these credits before. But one thing I do a lot of is keeping the Trumpcast Twitter handle up to date. So go follow us on there at Real Trumpcast for all the latest surrounding the show, including our upcoming live show in San Francisco. Hmm, I've never been to San Francisco. Tweet at me with some yummy suggestions. Also, if you haven't signed up for Slate Plus yet and you like the extra segment on today's show, go sign up at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to get one of those every week from yours truly. Consider this week a special preview. But more than anything, if you're into today's show, subscribe a friend to Trumpcast. Just grab their phone, tell them you'll give it back in a few seconds, and then hand it back to them with a big smile on your face because you know you've done your good deed for the day. Trumpcast is made with the help of Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, Jamel Bowie, Steve Lichtai, June Thomas, John D. Domenico, and so many other people that I ask for things big and small day in and day out. Thanks to you all, I don't say that enough. And thanks to you, person listening to me right now, for taking the time to tune in to Trumpcast. <laughs>